True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano. And on today's episode, we cover Luis Alfredo Garavito Cubillos, a.k.a. the Monster of the Andes, a.k.a. El Cura, a.k.a. the world's worst serial killer, a.k.a. the Monster of Genova, a.k.a. La Bestia, or the Beast. You know it's bad when you have five a.k.a.s. This is the largest scale serial killer of modern times, murdering anywhere between 138 to 300 boys and teenagers in Colombia. But first, just a reminder, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, to rate and review True Gay Crime. Doesn't cost you anything, and it sure as hell helps me out. And also a big shout out to my newest patron, Donald G. Donald comes in at the butcher knife level. At that level, I mean, you get behind the scenes content, you get early access to episodes, and you get bonus episodes. Just the tip, the mini episodes, those are only available now to patrons on my Patreon page at the butcher knife level. So welcome, Donald G. Great to have you on board. And I also asked a poll. We've been talking a lot about um, the death penalty here on True Gay Crime. Um, so I asked my uh, on my Patreon page, I put a poll. I said, what do you think of the death penalty? Yes or no? So two to one are in favor of the death penalty. Now, you don't need to have FOMO. You can just head on over to my Patreon page. The link is in the show notes of this episode. Go check it out. See what the levels are about. And if you're interested, support me by becoming a patron. Okay, now, this story takes place in Colombia. Colombia is a beautiful, diverse country steeped in culture and beautiful traditions and food. Um, If you get the chance to go, if you're heading down in that direction, and the other thing is, it's so close. Um, Okay, it's not close if you're in Australia, but if you're listening in North America, specifically on the east, anywhere on the east coast, it is so close. I mean, you can get direct flights. You're there in like four and a half hours, well, from Toronto, uh, or five hours, something. It's so easy to get to. And then when you go, there's so much to see because the cities are so different. Bogota, which is the capital, is in the mountains. So it's at elevation. So it's like 17 degrees, which is not really hot. I mean, that's seems very pleasant for a Canadian coming from, you know, February weather, let's say. Um, But 17 degrees all year round and kind of overcast. So it's kind of like, and Bogota is a big city. It's bustling. It's busy. The traffic is insane. Um, But it has everything you would want from a big city and the culture and everything like that is all there. Then you have a place like Medellin, which I don't know if you've heard of it. I don't know if you've heard of the singer Maluma. Google it if you haven't. You need to know this guy. Because, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's super sexy. But also, he's very talented. I love his music. And guess what? My dog is named Maluma, named after this singer, which I probably mentioned in earlier podcasts. So, 
This is all tying together. He's from Medellin. And if you haven't been to Medellin, you've, or you've probably heard of it from watching like Pablo Escobar, you know, all these cartel, you know, drug cartel shows on Netflix and stuff. They're always talking about Medellin. So beautiful place. And the weather, it's like, it's, it's called the city of eternal spring. And the weather is just perfection, like day in, day out. It's this city that's nestled in, in this little, like, between these little mountain ranges. It's just, it's just perfect. And then, to top it off, you have Cartagena, which is on the coast, on the northern coast, um, right on the Caribbean Sea. So, in Cartagena, it's like 33 degrees. So, anywhere you are in Colombia, it's going to be the exact same temperature all year round because it's so close to the equator. So, Bogota is in the mountains. So, it's a bit cooler. It's going to be 17 degrees year round. Medellin is probably like 20, 22, 23, 24, something all year round. Cartagena is super humid at 33 degrees about and just sort of more tropical. It's right on the Caribbean coast. They have the beaches. You've got the you've got the waves crashing. And in Cartagena, okay, I was on a cruise with my mom, and we had a stop in Cartagena. And there's an old walled city from when the Spanish first settled there that is just, so it's completely walled in, and then you go on the inside, and it's all the old, like the first buildings and everything like that. It's so it's a, this super historic part of Colombia and of Cartagena. If you drive along the coast, they have a, a I was going to say call it a, a provincial park, but they don't have provinces there. So Canadian. Um, they have a park there. It's like a national park, I guess, and it's called Tyrona, Parque Tyrona, and it's just gorgeous. We stayed in like a little hut in the woods and you go hiking through the the you know it's all sort of uh, rainforesty wetlandy uh, all like completely untouched and then when you get to the end of it you get to this really secluded beach it's like a 2 hour hike so like bring water and i warn you you have to ride back but on the way back you can get on a horse and the horse will take you if you can find a horse um gorgeous gorgeous just so like just depending on where you are in the country the vibe is so different the 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 people the the accent the food is gonna each have its own local feel and flavor and you can get this anywhere that you can find a colombian restaurant it's bandeja paisa so that is basically the national dish and it just has everything that i need in a dish. So there's beans, there's obviously, everything down there has beans and rice, by the way. Uh, it has beans, it has rice, there's like ground meat, there's chicharron. Okay. Oh, also a steak. You'll have like a steak on there. Um, chicharron, which is like fried pig fat, and it's crunchy and delicious. Um, there's a fried egg on there. There's plantains, which I don't know if you know plantains. It's it's like a it's from the banana family, and then you just cut it and then you fry it in like little banana chips kind of thing. And then there's always like a chorizo, and then an arepa, which is like a corn tortilla, um, and then avocado comes with everything down there. Well, that's the other thing. Everything grows there, so everything is super 
duper fresh. When we were in Tyrona, uh, staying in the little hut, and then we were going to the little restaurant, you have to walk through the little paths, you know, to the from one place to another. And along the paths on the side, you see pineapples growing. You see avocados. It's an orgy of fruits just ever hanging from trees, bananas, just everything. And it, so when they go, when they need to make something in the restaurant, they just go out, you know, outside, and then they just pick it and bring it in. Can you imagine? Meanwhile, I have to go to the grocery store and there's a sticker on mine that says like Ecuador or South Africa. Can you imagine the dist? I mean, uh, so needless to say, everything is super fresh and it just tastes that much better, doesn't it? Um, another thing about Colombia that's amazing is the Ruana. Now, the Ruana is basically a poncho. So think of like the Mexican poncho. Um, so it's kind of like that. And the way that they use it there is in the mountains because it gets chilly, but it's not cold. So they just want that extra layer of something just to keep you, you know, get the chill off. So I believe it's made of wool. It's the best cuddly blanket uh, when you're snuggling on the couch and you just want to like envelop yourself in like some cozy blanket situation, you pull out your Ruana and you put it on. Um, so definitely a must if you go there, bring back a Ruana. And when you go, there's no way you're leaving Colombia without music and dancing in your soul. This, they are so musically inclined. And the dancing, of course, is so important and it depends which city you're in where you're at you know which kind of dance is going to be more prevalent you know picture so think of Shakira you've seen Shakira videos you know she's from that coast there where we were talking about Cartagena Santa Marta um, that whole coast and it's very Afro influenced it's very Caribbean influenced um, so it's just from Shakira to Maluma Carlos Vives, Carol G, J Balvin, Sebastian Yatra, like it just goes on and on. They are so, so talented. And um, listen, Colombia is not without its faults, as we're going to find out in this story, this horrendous story. Um, you know, it's a homophobic culture. It, it is. It's deeply religious. Um, and But it, there's this weird duality to it where there's, the. I, I went to the largest gay club I've ever been to in my entire life called Teatron. It basically, it's so big, it's an amalgamation of like five or six different clubs, but it's one unit and you can just sort of drift in and out from the different, and it's different musics playing in different. It's just, the gay scene there is just exploding all over the place. And to be honest, a, a lot of people come out to their families and it's okay. So it's not... Um, I think on a personal level, it can, it can be okay in your personal life. If you think Ricky Martin, for example, he's not Colombian, but it's a good example. He's in his personal life. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. He has a husband, he's got children. He's, you know what I mean? Like it's, they accept that he's gay, but they don't want to talk about it. Right. He is so, he appears in so many Spanish, um, in so many Latin music videos, he's done, you know, duets with all of these guys. Like, he's just, we haven't heard a lot about Ricky recently in English, but in Spanish, it's non-stop. He's so huge in those communities. And 
That's what I mean. It's weird. It's like this. They've accepted him. It's cool. It's cool. Like, come, like, do music. But it's almost like a business transaction. It's kind of like, you're popular. I'm popular. I'm going to do music with you, which is kind of saying, hey, I'm okay with gay. But at the same time, they're so homophobic. It's it. They, there's a long, long way to go uh, in South America. And I'm going to speak to Colombia specifically because that's what we're talking about. And it's just, yeah. There's a lot of, it's very, very machismo culture. Um, women just are second. The, women come second. So can you imagine if you're gay? Never mind trans. It, you know, trans people are killed on a level that's, you know, skewed, deeply skewed. So um, there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. But the bones of the country, the the geography, the people are beautiful. They're so inviting and lovely. The food, the music, the dancing. The, I can't say enough good things about Colombia. Uh, if you do get a chance to go, please run. Do not walk. Okay, so of course that's when this whole fucking pandemic thing clears, which is who knows when at this point. Um, okay. So that's my sales pitch on Colombia. Uh, but like I said, there's a dark side to Colombia, and we're going to dive into that right now. The sources for my story are Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Vice.com, and Britannica.com. So without further ado, let's dive right into the story of Luis Garavito. On April 22nd, 1999, in the Colombian city of Via Vicencio, a homeless man sits on the side of the road. His hand is outstretched for food, for coins, for whatever he can get. His bones are weary, his stomach is hungry, but his eyes are sharp. From his perch in the doorway, he sees a man across the street. Brown hair, green eyes, with a deep scar on his left arm. The man is talking to a young boy, not older than twelve. The boy steps away from the man, but the man steps towards the boy and grabs his arm forcibly. The boy's eyes fill with fear. He kicks the man hard in the shin, and the man tightens his grip on the boy. Even though he's visibly drunk, the man easily overpowers the boy who's struggling to break free. The homeless man, fearing for the boy, gets up from his stoop and starts yelling at the drunk to leave the boy alone. Startled and not wanting to draw attention to himself, the drunk man lets go and slowly walks away. The boy doesn't hesitate. He bolts down the street and out of sight. The drunk man looks around for any other witnesses and doesn't realize the homeless man is memorizing his face. As the drunk man stumbles down the street, several taxi drivers pass him, slowly trying to avoid the man who's weaving on and off the street. Several drivers get a good look at the man who would later be dubbed by the Colombian press as La Bestia, or The Beast. Before he was called La Bestia, he was called Luis Alfredo Garavito Cubillos, born January 25, 1957, the eldest of seven sons in Genova, Quindío, in Colombia's western coffee-growing region. He's born into a violent household. His father, Manuel, is a drunk, he's very abusive, and he takes every opportunity to hit his children. Garavito's mother is a sex worker who's also abused by the father and who on occasion makes Garavito watch his mother with her clients. And then he lets the clients have their way with young Garavito. His mother was hooked on drugs and afraid of his father, so she didn't slash couldn't stop the abuse. And 
physically abused by his father, molested by his mother's clients, and repeatedly raped by his male neighbors, Garavito only gets through a few years of school before running away from home to live on the tough streets of Colombia. At eight years old, he meets a man on the streets who promises him a hot meal and a safe place to sleep. Garavito follows the man to an abandoned house where he's sexually assaulted by the stranger. The next day, he joins a street gang for protection. The gang robs people for food, money, and cars, which they sell for money at chop shops. At 16 years old, he starts work as a store clerk, then as a street vendor selling religious icons and prayer cards. Eventually, he makes enough money and is old enough to defend himself and fly solo. As an adult, he goes from job to job. He drinks heavily, he loses jobs left, right, and center, and he moves from town to town repeating this pattern. During this time, he lives in a bunch of cities with women who are about the same age or older than Garavito, and they have children, which sounds a lot like Colin Ireland. Remember Colin Ireland, the gay slayer? He was sort of going from woman to woman, from, you know, female companion to female companion, who were usually a little bit older than him and also had children, which is kind of like, I wonder if they were looking for some kind of mother figure, you know, somebody to save them, protect them, like his mother couldn't. I don't know. And although he lived with these children and his girlfriends, there are never any incidences of abuse. And in fact, by all accounts, Garavito is a caring and social father figure to his girlfriend's kids, even sending money back to them while he's on the road. Whether these relationships were platonic or not, we're just never going to know. But one of his girlfriends, quote-unquote, was named Teresa, who herself has a small child from a previous relationship. And Teresa would later tell authorities that Garavito got along with her child very well and that he was a kind man, though he easily got angry. He attempts suicide at least once during this time and is under psychiatric care for five years. So we can see this is not a good start for this man. I mean, anybody who's going to have any kind of inclination to become a monster, I mean, talk about everybody pushing the right buttons to make this monster appear. Um, he's a chameleon. He's able to adapt to his ever-changing environments, um, and he's had to learn to do that on the streets for survival. He changes his looks with different disguises. He is whoever he needs to be in the moment to survive and to get what he needs. Okay, so here is his modus operandi. Operandi. Oh my God, I've never said that word. I always say M-O. Modus operandi. Operandi, yeah. Okay, his killing spree begins in 1992. His victims are all about the same. They're young boys. They're aged 6 to 16. Most of them are homeless, peasants, or orphaned by the decades-long civil war in Colombia. In other words, poor, they're vulnerable, and they won't generally be missed. Garavito would approach these boys in the crowded Colombian streets, usually on the weekends when everyone is at the marketplace. He did this during the broad daylight to arouse less suspicion, offering them odd jobs for money, drugs, candy, or food. The odd jobs were too good to be true for the kids. It's easy work, it's fast cash, so most of them would agree because they need to help their families. He promises drugs to the addicts and places bets on games for children who like to gamble on the streets, and he would disguise himself as different characters. He grows different hairdos and uses different names. Sometimes he's a priest, sometimes a farmer, a street vendor, a drug dealer, an elderly man, a gambler. 
He would adjust his outfits for the job according to the local situation. Um, for example, he would ask them to carry a crate of oranges in certain towns or help with cattle in other towns. And he even went so far as to pretend to represent a fictitious foundation for the elderly and children's educations. And in that way, he gained entrance to primary schools as a speaker. So this guy's a master manipulator. Master manipulator. Once he had cemented the trust of the boy, he would lure them away from the hustle and bustle of the marketplace to somewhere isolated like the tall grasses and plants of a hilly countryside. He'd walk with them for a long time until they were tired and they were more easily overtaken. I mean, already they're like eight years old. They're going to be half his size anyway. So, okay, this next part is a trigger warning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the details of these crimes because it just feels weird because they're children and it feels gross. So I'm not going to go into too much detail except to say once Garabito was sure that he was far away enough from public that screams from the children wouldn't be heard, he would attack them. First, he would bind their hands. Then he would remove all their clothes. Then he tortures them. Then he rapes them. And sometimes he decapitates them. It's not really clear if the violation is done post-mortem or perimortem, however. And the boys would have sharp objects inserted into them, and often their testicles would be found in their mouths. All of Garavito's victims are found naked with bite marks and signs of penetration. Bottles of lubricant and empty liquor bottles, usually the cheapest brand of schnapps, are found nearby the crime scene. And Garavito also left behind his underwear and occasionally his shoes. Okay, I'm not going to go more into detail about the crime, the crimes than that because there's more details, but you get the point. You get the picture. Um, leaving his underwear and shoes behind. What? I guess his underwear got soiled, but why the shoes? Doesn't that seem like a clue? Aren't these all clues? I mean, this shows you how mm, confident he was in the fact that nobody's going to care. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Apart from these methods, decapitations and the attempts at it were very common. With some of the victims, all that remained are skeletons, but notches in the fourth vertebrae on the neck indicate attempted decapitations. Garavito would only dismember the bodies of those he needed to transport to a second location, but this didn't happen very often. Also, in a few cases, he put the bodies in bags and sunk them with heavy stones in the water. Now, he was very methodical, and Garavito subdivided suitable killing places into sectors, and he methodically killed one child per sector. Like many serial killers, Garavito took trophies from his kills, namely the photos of the boys' ID cards when they had them. In the Valle region of Colombia in 1995, there was a series of killings, children aged 8 to 10. Two of the victims were cousins, all of the victims came from the streets, and all of them went missing in broad daylight. Now the bodies are found on a slope of the hill with high-growing plants just outside of town. Garavito would choose one spot and he would bring multiple children to the same spot over a period of time. He was a creature of habit as most of these serial killers are. Do, if you remember Stephen Port from a previous episode, I mean, this guy was bringing his victims to the exact same spot and setting them up the exact same way. Then, on June 8th, 1996, a young boy goes missing from the town of Boyaca. The boy follows Garabito on his bicycle, only to be found five days later almost decapitated. 
In this case, the boy had a family, and his mother was worried when he didn't come home immediately. She starts a search. She finds out that he had been at a store in town with some other boys when a strange man brought them sweets. That strange man was identified as Garabito. The police question him. He admits to buying the kids candy, but then he says he left the shop alone. The police believe his story, and four days later, he kills a 13-year-old boy in the neighboring town of Pereira. Again, they had him. They had him. How many times do the police have their man and let him go? For five years, the murders go on unabated. Since no one is filling any missing persons reports on the disappearances, bodies are found all over Colombia, and it's not until 1997 and the discovery of a mass grave site with 36 bodies of young boys near the city of Pereira that authorities begin to take notice and a manhunt begins. Okay, here's a side note. Garabito had an eye condition and it's super rare and it's only found in men of a certain age. His glasses were specifically designed for his unique condition and these particular glasses were found at the site of the mass grave. So, that looks pretty guilty. But before Garabito is even a suspect, the public finds out about the mass grave site and everyone has an opinion about who could be doing these horrible things. Theories fly around like how it has to be multiple people because it couldn't be one person doing all this killing. That doesn't make any sense. Or they also thought, oh, it must be Satan worshippers. Obviously Satan worshippers. And that these were their sacrifices. And people even started to point the finger at the organ trade. But um, that was quickly dispelled since the bodies are obviously tortured and mutilated with unsterile tools. And most of the organs were intact. So, you know, these weren't the clean cuts of the organ trade. This was just torture and murder. Uh, another theory was that it was one of the other known serial killers on the loose in Colombia. Like Pedro Alonso Lopez, a.k.a. the Strangler of the Andes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the other serial killers of Colombia in a little bit. The widespread investigation found the killings weren't relegated to a specific location. And in February 1998, outside the town of Genova, two naked bodies were found lying next to each other. The boys are identified as best friends who had been missing, aged 11 and 13. They come from poor backgrounds and work the streets selling fruit and gum to help their families' incomes. One of the boy's mothers, who said that their son had rushed home on the day he disappears, claimed that he was offered work from a man who needed help transporting cattle. The next day, another body, only meters away from the first two. All three had their hands bound and showed signs of sexual abuse. Their necks were cut with bruising on their backs, genitals, and legs, with the murder weapon found in the same area, a knife. Investigators also find a note bearing an address on it. The address leads police to the doorstep of Garavito's girlfriend, Teresa. I mean, you leave the murder weapon and an envelope with the address? And like, <laughs> this, do you remember Gary Ray Bowles from the last uh, podcast when he, he murdered the guy in the trailer and then, but he forgot his parole papers? were underneath the body with his name on it, basically ugh, just giving it all away. Um, so when the police visit Teresa, she says she hasn't seen Garabito in months, but she gives them a bag he had left behind with his belongings. Get this. The items in the bag include ID pictures of young boys, detailed journals of his murders, okay, which is very uh, Burdella, 
Berdella was keeping those journals, if you remember. A calendar with cryptic notes was found, a list of victims according to the dates and tally marks of his victims and bills. So my question is, Teresa was sitting on all of this evidence and she never said anything? Like, obviously she looked through his shit. I mean, if he left a bag of stuff, I'm sure she was like, Maybe looking through, maybe there's a few, you know, Colombian pesos in there or something of use to her. I'm sure that she saw the items in the bag. The fact that she didn't go to the police, I mean, she must have been terrified, I guess. Okay, so of course the new information leads them to Garavito's place, but what do you think? Oh yeah, okay, it's empty. He's not anywhere to be found. Which brings us to April 22nd, 1999. The police have been searching for him. And then we go back to the opening story of this podcast where he tries to abduct a young boy. He's seen by a homeless man who frightens him as w- frightens him away. But his identity is confirmed by the taxi cab drivers and the homeless man. And when police stop Garavito, he doesn't have ID on him. And in fact, he gives his name as a local small town politician from a neighboring town. So he's just lying about his identity to the police. He says he got lost and he's trying to find his way back to his town. And in those days, there's no computer or electronic file. This isn't that long ago. But when you're dealing with a society, a corrupt society... It's always lagging behind. So yes, it's 1999. There should be computer electronic files of, and with people's IDs and stuff. In Colombia, at this time, there was not. So there's no file record of people's IDs. Um, and so the regu- and regular fingerprint identification hasn't been possible uh, because of organizational and technical reasons. So at first, the police don't realize who they're talking to. La bestia which is Colombia's most wanted serial killer. But they bring him in into the station on suspicion of rape of that boy that got away. Which is what happened. God, this is just like Groundhog's Day. This is exactly what happened with uh, friggin' Gary Ray Bowles in the last podcast. They brought him in for something, thinking he was someone else, when really he was so much worse. And then they only discover who he really is once he's in custody. So... Okay, continuing. On October 28th, 1999, after being in custody for six months, they don't know who he is for six months. They just think he's just some guy who attempted to rape a 12-year-old. Anyway, they're doing a routine check, and police find in his clothing several phone numbers that were written down. These numbers help them determine that they don't have some small-town politician in custody, but actually Garabito. And during his first round of questioning, he knows the gig is up. The jig is up? He knows the jig is up. What's a jig? I thought a jig was a dance. Shouldn't it be gig? Anyway, he knows the jig is up. Uh, so he confesses to murdering 140 boys, killing children in 54 cities across Colombia, as well as in Ecuador. The largest concentration of killings occurred in his native region of Pereira. Garabito admits to traveling far and wide during his killing spree, committing murders in at least 11 of Colombia's 32 departments. The department is like a, a province or a state. They have departments. He's also suspected of murders in neighboring Ecuador, as I mentioned. Okay, 
So his confession reaches to the four corners of the country. People from all walks of life in every bustling city, rural village are completely disgusted. They're horrified. They're terrified. They're saddened. They're frustrated that someone as bad as this monster could go on a killing spree so long unchecked right in front of their faces. Well, uh, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more in a bit how Colombia has produced three of the top five top five serial killers on the planet they have three of the top five and how something like that could happen in a country um anyway he goes on to say that all of his crimes were committed when he's drunk and he was taken over by a quote superior being i hope that that's not some kind of bad excuse oh i was drunk and taken over by a superior being it's not my fault Colombia does not have the death penalty, but due to the enormity of the crimes, General Rosso Jose Serrano, the chief of the National Police, during, uh, among many others, calls out for an exception and for the bastard to be put to death. So in Colombia, it takes more than just a confession. It takes proof to really convict someone. So a four-person unit of the DA's Office of Investigation start to investigate similar homicides all over Colombia. They find hundreds of similar murders. Similar locations on hillsides, overgrown with plants, near towns, sprinkled all over the country. The boys are all the same profile, they're prepubescent, and they're from low-income families. Most of the bodies are never identified, and since most of the children never even had an x-ray in their life for their teeth, it's impossible to identify them from their dental records, which don't exist. So, when possible, DNA is taken from the crime scene, and when Garabito is out of his cell, because now he's in prison, remember, but they're still investigating all the murders, detectives sneak in to his cell, and they take DNA samples from his... I love that they have to sneak in. Like, he's in jail. You guys are in charge. You tell him to step out of the cell, or, or just, like, cut some hair off his head. I don't... I guess you're not allowed to do that, right? But you gotta sneak around, like, oh, okay, you keep lookout. I'm gonna, like... No, I'm the police. Like, you're the one that's in jail for uh, suspected of being all these murders. You've already confessed to the murders of 140 boys, and I got to sneak around to take a hair off your pillow? Okay, not surprisingly, however, and of course, the DNA from the victims matches perfectly with Garabitos. As if that's not enough, police arrange for the entire prison to get an eye exam. Okay, now remember earlier I mentioned that he had a special eye condition, uh, so he had special glasses. He left his special glasses at one of the ma- uh, the, at the mass grave site, for whatever reason. So the police find them and they're like, "Okay, the killer has this kind of eye condition." So what they do, which is very much like, "Quick, sneak into a cell and steal a hair off his pillow." Um, they arrange for the entire prison to get an eye exam because they don't want to arouse suspicion from Garavito that they were onto him about his eyesight. So. Uh, but what they were looking to confirm was that the, uh, and then like I said, what they're looking to confirm is that the glasses for, with the specific location that were found at the mass, at the mass gravesite are going to match him. And of course, guess what they did? I mean, okay, how much more evidence do you need? Okay, so Garabito never appears in court since in Colombian, in the Colombian penal code, just to simplify matters, if the defendant confesses and there's objective proof of the crimes that matches the confessions, you can go straight to sentencing, which cuts out a lot of, you know, 
paperwork and taxpayer dollars and whatnot. So since Garavito confesses to murdering 140 children and the evidence is there to support that claim, a judge in Tunja, the capital of the central Boyaca province, convicts on 138 of the 172 accounts. He also found Garavito guilty of the attempted rape of the 12-year-old boy in Via Vicencio in April 1999, the crime that obviously led to this arrest. He sentenced to a, a total of, are you ready? 1,853 years and nine days in prison, which is the lengthiest sentence in Colombian history, which obviously makes sense. He's the worst serial killer on the planet, so it should be the lengthiest sentence in history because they don't have the death penalty. Um, so Gerabito is currently serving his sentence in a maximum security prison in Valle du Par in the department of El Cesar in Colombia. They have to keep him separate from the other prisoners because obviously they would just kill him immediately because they do not tolerate um, sex abuse of children at all in prison. Hey, everyone's got their standards. Um, he's afraid of getting poisoned, obviously, and he only takes drinks that are given to him by a few people. But wouldn't that be a good thing? Like, let the prisoners do the dirty work. They should just put him in the general population and just let nature take its course, right? I mean, that would be very much like, remember, oh, who had that heart condition? Remember a few podcasts ago, the guy with the heart condition? Oh, Burde oh it was Burdella, right. Remember Burdella uh, went to prison and he was complaining because they weren't giving him his heart medication and then he died of a heart attack, which I thought was brilliant because that way they didn't sentence him to death. They just didn't really help him out in, you know, in prison. They just didn't, you know, support his health. Um, so in this case, they should just release Garavito into the general population and well 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 he was killed by the prisoners I mean it wasn't us this is about to get really fucking weird and you're going to get upset you're going to have a lot of questions I'm not gonna have the right answers because it's upsetting to me as well so sit back buckle up and listen to the next part the case against Garavito never really closes, since in prison he continues to confess to more killings, and up to, 2000, and up to the year 2003, he's actually found guilty 70 more times, which is great. So far, so good. And since in Colombia the sentences for every single offense are added up, he technically is sentenced to 2,600 years in prison. Okay, so, so far, so good, right? No. I'm about to throw you a huge curveball and you're not going to believe what the fuck is going on right now. Okay, here we go. After the reform of the Colombian Penal Code in the year 2000, they abolished the death penalty. Okay, we already knew that. We knew that. And no one can be imprisoned for more than 40 years in total. I'll say it again. Colombian law now limits imprisonment to 40 years, no matter what your crime is. So, due to the heinous crimes that Garavito committed, they do make a small exception and he gets 60 years. Now, 60 years would see him die in prison, probably. But, guess what? That sentence is reduced 
to 52 years and six months because of a, the plea deal that he takes where he uh, agrees to tell police where and when the crimes happened and where to find the bodies on a map, which he continues to do well into the 2000s. And he agrees not to contest the charges against him. And since Garavito is highly cooperative during his time in prison, an even earlier release is a possibility. Are you, is your jaw on the ground? Are you, has this fucked you up yet? Oh, no, not yet? Okay, well, good, because there's more. He gets to be up for parole. This guy murdered possibly up to three murdered. He sexually abused, tortured, raped, decapitated, mutilated 300 boys age 6 to 16. And he's up for parole in 22 years into his sentence. And guess when that is? Guess when 22 years has passed in his sentence? I'm, I'm taking guesses. Any bets? Any bets? 20 23, two years from now, Garabito could be free. He'll only be in his mid-60s. Now, yeah, I know. Can you, this is, you can rewind this recording. You can listen to it again to see if you heard correctly. Trust me, I read the same sentences over and over again. I was like, this can't be true. This is the worst monster on the planet anybody has ever seen. This is children. These are children. He'll only be in his mid-60s. Obviously, there are petitions out there being signed by people begging the Colombian government to keep this sick fuck locked away. Colombians are openly criticizing the possibility that Garavito might get out of prison. They're vocal about the fact that the sentence wasn't harsh enough and that he deserves to die or at least get life, which neither exists in the Colombian Penal Code. In June 2006, Garavito went on a popular TV show hosted by Guillermo Prieto Lagota. In the interview, Garavito is obviously trying to minimize his crimes and guess what he says? When he gets out of prison, he wants to go into politics so he can help abused children. And so we wait with bated breath to see if the world's worst serial killer, Luis Garavito, will indeed be let out of prison in the next two years, released back into a politically unstable Colombian society full of violence and vulnerable young boys. If he is, God help Colombia. Does anybody listening to this podcast, think that this man, this monster, will not repeat his offenses? So, I did discover a really interesting article uh, on vice.com, and it was asking the question, why Colombia has such horrible killers when Garavito confessed to his crimes in 1999, he was attributed with 138 kills, which gives him the number one spot in the world. I mean, he's only attributed with 138, but it's much higher than that. But not far behind him is Pedro Lopez. He's a fellow Colombian who killed 110 young girls, and he takes the number two spot. Then, taking the number five position is Daniel 
Camargo Barbosa, who strangled at least 71 young girls in Colombia and Ecuador. So, the question remains, why is Colombia producing these horrible monsters? So, from this article on Vice.com, I got this information, to try to sort out why three of the top five worst killers on the planet come from the same country. So let's take the case of Garabito as an example. Back in 1998, Doran Saavedra Aldemar was a 31-year-old criminal investigator with the Fiscalia General de la Nación. Oh, I sounded Spanish there. Nación. <laughs> but like Spain Spanish. Um, anyway, that's the Colombian version of the Attorney General's office. He was noticing trends of victims being found in Colombia's forested hills, and he tries to suggest to his superiors that they have a serial killer on their hands. But he's met with criticism, and they just completely shut him down. So, if you think about it, in North American culture, we've grown up mythologizing serial killers since the 70s. But in Colombia, the concept of a serial killer is just not a thing. Like Serial killers are just not on the radar at all. So the victims they were finding weren't being subjected to the usual violence Colombians have come to accept as part of their daily lives. They just weren't used to the methods of a serial killer. They had trouble differentiating this serial killer violence with the rest of the violence in the country. Colombia is synonymous with violence. There's political violence, there's armed conflict, and this violence has allowed characters like Garabito to operate under the radar. When violence is normalized, it goes unchecked, and it can flourish in the most horrible ways. Colombia's history is riddled with violence. They gained independence from Spain in 1810. Then in the 19th and 20th centuries, they see revolutions. And after World War II, the country spirals down into a period called La Valencia, uh, or the violence. And that's when the liberal presidential candidate is assassinated in 1948. And the ensuing violence kills about 200,000 Colombians. La Violencia is followed by a civil war where another 220,000 Colombians die. Then things get worse because they discover the coca plant. They discover it in the Colombian Andes, which brings the drug wars and easily claims at, at least another 50,000 people. I mean, if you have seen any of the Netflix uh, specials on the Colombian drug trade and Pablo Escobar, for one, I mean, there's tons of drug lords, um, the violence is just, I mean, Pablo Escobar is was a monster in his own right. So, by the 1990s, Colombians have developed an uneasy coexistence with murder, and it becomes part of the fabric of life. In the 1990s, 2000s, more than 20,000 people are killed a year, and police, prosecutors, public defenders, judges, they literally cannot keep up with the corpses that are just piling up. Today, as well as in the late 90s, the rate of homicide in Colombia surpassed the state's ability to convict offenders, which left plenty of violent thugs on the loose, obviously, like Garabito. In Colombia, as well as other parts of Latin America, prison time is just not a deterrent. So in Colombia, it's not genetics, it's not some intrinsic cultural factor that makes Colombians more violent than their neighbors in Chile, Ecuador, or Panama. Instead, we can just expect a higher likelihood of serial killings in countries with lax law enforcement, low clearance rates, which is basically uh, convictions per capita, 
high levels of impunity and the normalization of violence. It's a tragic product of normalized violence, ineffective policing, and corruption. Now, in terms of the problem of poverty and children, they've been um, the children have been separated from their parents by said poverty or the political violence, and that has displaced 1.5 million Colombians in little more than a decade. These children are begging on the street, they sell newspapers, they shine shoes, they're desperate. Kids disappear all the time in Colombia. The authorities said it's because that no one is there to notice the children are missing or to inquire about their whereabouts that Garabito was able to kill for so long without being detected. But his confession has brought an avalanche of criticism from poor people and poor communities, underserved communities, who say that the police are indifferent, abusive, and corrupt. Put on top of that the difficulties of getting different agencies to cooperate in a large country that is constantly suffering from political upheaval, massive violence, and organizational problems, and you have a recipe for disaster. This ends the horrible story of the world's worst serial killer, Luis Alfredo Garavito Cubillos. I, 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 that, that article on vice.com was so fascinating to me because it really shone a light on how a, a killer like that can go unchecked for so long. And it was a fascinating read to, to look at the history, the violent history of Colombia. And it's hard for me because at the beginning of this podcast, you know, I was singing the praises of Colombia. Now, when I was there, I never felt in danger. Uh, granted, I was there with my partner, and he's Colombian. So he speaks the language, he fits in, he looks like them. I mean, do you know what I mean? So it's like a tour guide, you know, cloaking my whiteness and my gringoness. Um, so I never felt in danger. Um, the only feeling I ever, listen, we held hands, you know, I mentioned it's a homophobic, um, country, unfortunately, we were holding hands in broad daylight in the streets of, in the busy streets of Bogota. So I didn't, and, and, and I didn't notice any bad looks or anything. Listen, I get looks in Toronto for doing the same thing. So I didn't feel anything different. Um, the only place where I felt, and it wasn't even, I felt I was in danger. I just felt like, ooh, better keep an eye on my wallet was in Cartagena because that is such a tourist location. And when you have a tourist destination like that, you have, I mean, cruise ships unloading rich white people into this, you know, relatively poor city you're going to have crime, right? You're going to have petty crime because that's where people are like stealing wallets. They're stealing cameras. They're, you know, they're trying to take advantage of you and, you know, trick you into like little petty things. Um, so I didn't feel like my life was in danger per se. I just felt like, oh, I better keep an eye on my wallet and uh, I'm just going to put my camera away or, you know, um, keep my head. Maybe I won't make eye contact or I'll just uh, keep my hat down a little bit. Um, because actually I got, we got lost. My mom and I got lost at one point. Um, they let us off on the cruise ship and then we were going around. Of course they take us to this emerald store to buy emeralds and you know, it's a little scammy, but whatever, it's fine. And then, oh, you have half an hour to walk around. Great. So we kind of got lost and then we ended up in these like little streets and then we noticed it wasn't 
the streets weren't busy and touristy anymore, which is more scary. Because when you've got people around you, you're like, okay, if I scream for help, you know, there's people. Uh, and an empty street, you scream for help, mm, okay, there's no one there to help you. So that was a little, like, sketchy. I felt a little weird. But, um, but violence on this level, I mean, obviously it exists. I mean, these are facts. I'm not making this up. Um, so this all exists. I didn't feel that when I was there. But it's different to visit a place as a tourist. And then it's different to live there full-time. And, you know, I have the privilege of of having enough money to stay in nicer areas and, you know, stay in nicer hotels and stuff. Um, so we're talking about the countryside. We're talking about the poor towns. We're talking about children who maybe are orphaned. They don't have families. They're on the street. They're looking. They're begging. They're anything, a handout, you know, anybody who's offering them you know, some work that they can get some cash and bring back to their families or feed themselves or it's just a desperate situation. And then surrounded by violence is normal. Okay, well, and people go missing all the time. And the police are, you know, too wrapped up in bigger things like the cartels and, you know, massive violence that when you find a few bodies, you're like, well, this is not going to be a priority. You know, this kid didn't have parents that we're not going to, we don't have, and, and we don't have the resources and we don't have the, the structures. Um, our agencies don't speak to each other. You know, fingerprinting is not a thing. So again, this was back in the late nineties. Things have progressed, you know, to this date. And obviously since they, you know, have convicted and, and, and they, they know that three of the top worst serial killers come from Colombia. Now they know what a serial killer is to boot. Um, and now they know what to look for. Now they know, they know how to take care of it. The problem is the penal code. I can't get over the fact that the maximum sentence you can get is 40 years. That's the max, no matter what you did, no matter if you killed 300 children. I just, this guy is up for parole in two years. Now, just because you're up for parole doesn't mean you're going to get it. It doesn't mean you're going to get out. I, come on, I mean, this guy can't get out. This is not a thing that can happen. I don't think that he's actually going to be released. Maybe I'm looking through rose-colored glasses. I don't know. Listen, if I was in charge, you know me, I would stick him in with the general population and let nature take its course. <laughs> Survival of the fittest, I say, in prison. Well, with somebody like that, who cares? The thing is, if he does get out, um, he's still young enough to offend again. And it also sets a precedent. It's basically saying, hey, listen, you know, you can do whatever you want in Colombia because, yeah, you'll pay a little time, but you'll get out eventually. Let's just hope. Let's keep an eye on the story and hope that this monster remains in prison. La Bestia, the monster of Genova, the world's worst serial killer, El Cura, and the monster of the Andes, Luis Garavito, stays in prison forever. Let's hope. That's it for today. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. 
Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com, and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did, because it helps me create content you like, and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?